Being a professional isn't about the money you make, the position you hold, your level of expertise or fame. It's the motivation and the attitude you bring to your work. A desire for always learning and improving and balancing your creative output with getting the business done. Welcome and join the Creating Pros. Hi, and welcome back to Creating Pros. I'm your host, Jim Nettles, and this week I have the one and only Randy Dawn joining me. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. So, Randy, do you want to kind of give everybody a little bit of your background, all the stuff on the journalism side, and of course, we'll dive into some fiction here in a little while? Certainly. Uh, so, I am a, well, the Background is that I am a freelance uh, entertainment journalist. I've written for Variety, the LA Times, the Today Show webpage, a bunch of other places. I write about film and TV primarily, uh, but I'm also an author and I have had a bunch of short stories published in various anthologies and online. And um, last year I got my first novel published. It's Tune In Tomorrow. Um, Which is a fun read. Thank you. It's about a reality TV show run by mythical creatures for mythical creatures, but starring humans. Uh, it is deeply punny and silly. And I also get to talk about a little bit of serious stuff as well. But basically, it is, it is meant to be a fun read. So um, so that's what I'm most proud about at the moment. And yeah, that's that's the thing that's occupying me the most. And we're going to come talk about that fun read, because again, that was one of those things of we did a hot off the press, which is how I found out about it. but. Uh -huh. Um, it was a fun read, and I'm like, soap operas. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So we'll we'll loop back around to that, but it's yeah. definitely a fun read. So <laughs> How did you actually get started down the journalism path? Oh well, you know, I've I've always been uh, a writer of some of one of so, one sort or another. I've I wrote sto short stories about my stuffed animals when I was really little, uh, and I was writing um, novels while I was still in middle school. I, I would write chapters. And then I would pass them around to my friends and they would pass them back to me and they circulated that way. It was like my own mini version of you know, Charles Dickens and, and the fans standing on the pier waiting to find out what happened to little Nell and everything. Um, and I just, I just kind of continued from there, but I also was practical enough to know that writing fiction is not always something that pays very well. It, it pays very well, as we all know, for a very small group of people. And then there's all the rest of us who maybe see hobby money maybe a little bit better. So even then, even when I was a kid, I was like, all right, this this could be tough. I may just end up writing for myself. What kind of writing can I do that they'll actually pay me for? Because for that was just how my kid brain worked. It was like, oh, you want to do writing? You must stay with writing. You can't do anything else and also write. And I think I mentioned this to my mom and she said, oh, well, you could be a journalist. And I was like, what is a journalist? So that's really kind of how it got started. I, I realized that I not only liked to write fiction, but I also enjoyed nonfiction. I love doing interviews. I love um, doing research. And it, it, you know, journalism is a great career for me because it, it allows me to be nosy. I get to ask all the dumb questions. And um, so, yeah, that's how I continued with it. And the thing is that as, as I learned and as many other people have learned, just because you sell articles uh, in the nonfiction sphere and, you know, write, write, write for you know, our journalist, that doesn't guarantee you're going to get your fiction published right away. They really are. What, what can help the other? And I'm happy to talk about that aspect of things. But you do not need to be a journalist to get fiction published. And getting fiction published is not a guarantee you'd get to do journalism. 
it's just they're they're sort of related but on parallel tracks as opposed to intersecting tracks. Now I know when I first got into some of my accidental movement to journalism, um, a lot of the first stuff I covered was politics and mm -hmm. science and tech and all sorts of fun stuff when I was in high school and then in college. And mm -hmm. because I was willing to go pretty much anywhere and do the stuff that everybody thought else would thought was boring because I would trade stuff off. Oh, you want me to go, you want me to go cover astronauts and go and listen to them speak and do a couple of interviews. Okay. If you want me to go do that, but I want to go do this football. Okay. Yeah. You can go. Yeah. Here you go. <laughs> to me, that would be the flip. Like, oh, you want me to go do this football? All right, but I want to go talk to these astronauts. <laughs> oh, trust me. I was absolutely, it was like, <laughs> I'm going to take that, but I'm going to still get, I still want to be on the field. Game. Right. Um, right. Yeah, there was a lot of fun stuff doing that. And that kind of accidentally became something I have done off and on throughout my entire career is writing in a lot of different spaces. Mm -hmm. How did you wind up in entertainment? Um, you know, it's not it's not a really super inspiring story. It's a it's a story of lack of self-confidence. Um, I didn't think that I knew anything and I didn't think that I was qualified it, while I was in college, which is where I really started writing officially. Um, I didn't think I was qualified to write politics. I didn't know. I didn't understand how the news really was formed. And they were teaching us how you do these things. But I just didn't feel like I was very confident to do that. Um, which is, in retrospect, all these years later, is both understandable and completely ridiculous because nobody in college, nobody in high school knows anything about politics or news. You find out along the way, and that's part of um, what you end up writing about is, you know, you uh, this whole asking the silly questions. Well, when you don't know stuff, you ask those questions, and that's what you do as a rookie reporter. But in my mindset at the time was, I don't know how to do these things. I don't have the confidence to do these things. Um, and I, w I went to school in Boston and I didn't, I wanted to stay in Boston. I wanted to stay in the big city. And I didn't want to take one of those uh, writing assignments where you go out to the middle of nowhere and buy a car and you live in a little tiny apartment and you report on the city council meetings. Like that was not something I really want. I didn't want to shake up my whole life. So I don't think that that's, those are necessarily admirable reasons to not go into news and politics, but they were my reasons. Uh, and I wanted to stay in the city. And I had already started writing about entertainment journalism at that point, because when you're in college, they are very open to, oh, we have a brand new band over from England for the first time. Uh, we'd love it if you could take you to dinner and you could interview them. And you're like, ooh, free dinner. So and then they said, I, I'm, I'm old enough that they would still send albums in the mail, but you started getting albums and CDs in the mail. And it was just felt very like, wow, this is this is great. So I, I learned that I really like writing about musicians. To me, they are, without trying to sound too frou-frou or too, I don't know, airy-fairy, musicians to me are, are as close to magic as we really get in the real world um i do not know how to write a song um i do not know how to write lyrics to go with that song and i music has moved me in so many ways and inspired me in so many ways that anybody who can do that uh, i am just i need to know your process i want to know all about how this happens and so i became a music journalist first 
I had such a great time. I really did. I, I loved doing it. And I was still at the age where you're just completely passionate about music. I think in a way that when you grow older, you're simply not. Um, the, it's it, it just kind of subsumes you. Like you're just reading. I would be like reading lyrics, like, oh, this is wisdom. And, you know, I, I it just really stuck with me in that way. So I loved writing about music journalism. Um, and I wanted to stick with that. And then what happened is after I was a few years out of college, music wasn't quite jazzing me the way that it had. I either had all the music that I really loved or the new music that was coming out wasn't really grabbing me. And unlike in other parts of journalism, if you don't really, if you're not really on that carousel of what the new music is and you're passionate about it, and, oh, this is the new band you've got to listen to. It's much harder to fake that. I think you can, I think you can do it better with TV and film, but for music, for music, that didn't seem to work. So when it, I kind of, fell out of love with all of this new bands that were coming out and I started getting fewer assignments and I thought, well, all right, let's, I still want to stay in this lane. Let's see if we can do more TV and film. And then I just sort of took the off ramp into TV and film. And that's primarily what I do today. Yeah. It was one of those things I used to love to cover was music, right? Yeah. I covered some of the stuff on the MTV tours. Nice. I got to do a lot of the concerts and, and mm -hmm. things like that, which was a lot of fun. Oh, yes. Yeah. I went to the Grammys one year. I was backstage at the Grammys. That was great. You know, my favorite article of all time. I got to do a cover story on Radiohead and I got to go on the road with them for a couple of days. I mean, there's some really great stuff. My my one of my few bucket list things that I really still want to do as a journalist is I'd love to have an article in Rolling Stone. And that just has never that has never quite panned out. Well, you know, they've they've expanded the articles they take these days. Uh, yeah, I. I you know, the thing is, I just don't know if I, me, I don't even know who to call up. I, I, me at my age is not exactly on that, on that track. Like, I don't even know how to get in there. It's kind of like, I think maybe that window has shifted. But, you know, if I managed to have a book that came out that became a huge bestseller, but also had to do with music, maybe they would let me uh, do a guest column or something like that. So what's it like doing, you know, even TV and film, right? What's it like to get into... When you're covering the business and you start seeing how the sausage is made, right? It's mm -hmm. it's a very different thing to sit there and see long shoot hours and scripts and revisions and see how all that stuff's made. Mm -hmm. What's it? What's the fun part of covering entertainment? Um, actually, to me, the one of the fun parts is watching the sausage get made because what you see on the TV is this finished. It's it's the iced cake. You know, I like seeing all the layers inside. I like to know what the ingredients are that went into it because the way that it transforms later on, once you do see it, it's it's a very different animal. And I like seeing how much of this happens on the fly, how much of this is very, uh, um, I'm trying to think, it's, it's not ad, not ad-libbed per se, but just kind of, there, there is a certain amount of making it up as you go along. And some of the, my favorite articles that I've written have dealt with more of the behind the scenesy things, the how the sausage gets made. One of my favorite articles that I came up with the idea was I spoke to a bunch of costume designers about using the color red in art and in, in outfits on in in their various TV or in various TV uh, shows or movies, because the fact is when if you see a character in red, that is intentional. That is not like oh they just grabbed something off the shelf. 
that's intentional. That character is about to have a moment. That character might actually about be about to die. I mean, that is a thing. And I, I, I use that one, but there are many others that I don't want to share with people because I kind of wish there was a part of me that I could eternal sunshine that part of my brain because now when I do watch TV and movies and I see those things happen, I, I sort of think, oh, it's almost like a foreshadowing that they don't that they mean to be a, a, a more a more sub rosa thing, you know, but I can see it because I've covered it. Um, so there's that kind of stuff is fascinating to me. I, I've done interviews. This is not getting anything away, but I've done interviews with um, set designers. How you know when you see a set, you'll see the if you're in a kitchen, you'll see the cabinets, you'll see the chairs, the tables, and everything. But the thing is, their job is also to put all of the plates and everything in the cabinets, even if those doors are never opened. There's probably stuff in those cabinets. There's probably stuff in those drawers. So when an actor comes on the set and has to do that, those are their lines. If they like pull open a drawer, even if the camera doesn't show what's in the drawer, the fact that there's stuff in that drawer that is relating to their character helps them stay in character. So I loved talking to set designers to say, oh, what stuff did you put in drawers? And speaking of drawers in Tune In Tomorrow, backstage, um, I used something that I also know that soap opera actors do, which is they take their little script for the day, which is called sides. You know, the big script, which is the whole thing they're gonna do. But then the, they'll do like a couple of scenes and they'll make a much smaller, more handheld version of these lines. And that's called their sides. And uh, actors will often put those sides into drawers on the set because they're like, okay, we're going to do my lines. And then when we have to pause, I'll put it back out and make sure I know what I'm doing. So I love the idea of thinking that in this uh, set that we're looking at and we're supposed to understand that as part of the story, there's actually lines that are hidden in drawers and behind cabinets and stuff like that. So um, yeah, that's that's some of the stuff that I like the most is, is how that sausage gets made. Um, I very much like the, doing articles that are up, that sort of tie different shows themes together. Um, when you start seeing TV shows or movies that are coming out, but they kind of have a different take, a, a familiar, not a familiar, but a, a common thread between them that maybe they did nobody planned to, but it's coming out. Uh, an article that I just wrote for this this Oscar season, I think it is. Yeah, it'll come out in the LA Times in another couple of weeks is about the fact that there's there's a bunch of movies that are coming out now showing not just not just female care more female characters but more like female characters helping one another as opposed to having to be saved or having to be mentored by men or something like that and it's it's a bit of a twist on the the, the strong female character because it doesn't matter if they're a strong female character or not it has to do with women providing insight and mentorship to women. And there's several movies that are coming out like that. So that's another sort of sausagey thing that I like to, I like to pay attention to. What have you seen happen with changes in the business, right? Both in, in stories and storytelling, but just, you know, being at that part of the background of the business, what, what have you seen change? Well, when I first started, there was this sense that if you're going to cover the TV industry, you need to be watching practically all of the TV industry. Like, you know, and you can, it, it was, it was kind of like, there are all these amazing shows that are coming out and you need to be familiar with all of them. And one of the great things about the overwhelming number of shows that, that we have now that come out 
on television is it is really not physically possible to watch all the TV or even all of the really good TV. And so that actually was a big thing because that freed me from having to be aware of every single episode of every single great TV show. Um, and it freed me up to look at other stuff. And that that certainly has been a, bit, been a big change, not just for me, but the fact that there is so much more TV that we got we get to watch these days. And there's so much more intricate TV and complicated TV. And, you know, TV used to be one of these things that actors would go and do if they couldn't get better jobs. Or it was considered, you know, very second rate compared to film. And the having long being able to tell longer stories with more complex characters and more sophisticated storytelling i think is actually making our audiences more sophisticated because we watch enough of this stuff um new tropes told different ways and in more with more depth we then start expecting more as the audience and TV hopefully will continue to continue. Hopefully, it'll continue to be like a feedback loop. But I do think that audiences have gotten smarter about this kind of stuff, and they demand better TV now. It can't just be. It can be the same old junk, but I don't think it does as well, and it certainly doesn't win win awards. Um, film, on the other hand, I feel has kind of taken a nosedive. Um, but I guess making them just became so expensive, um, and you and you you think about how much money is spent per hour on TV versus how much is spent on film. And if a film crashes and burns, they, you know, they've spent so much money, whereas that money could have paid for four or five television series at this point. So they started being so risk averse with films that it really all, it almost all became remakes, sequels, prequels, superhero films, which, you know, have their own lack of internal logic to them. Um, and that really, th those did well enough that they really took over the, the film industry. But unfortunately, I feel like that's the, it becomes an Ouroboros, you know, it, it, the snake is, it has been eating its own tail for a while and has practically reached the head at this point. We don't have, we need much more, we need much more creative freshness and stories that we haven't heard a million times before, because like I was saying a minute ago, the, the TV audience has become more sophisticated. The TV audience also wants to see films. And at some point, you know, they're not going to be satisfied with just the latest iteration of whatever franchise was popular 20 years ago or five years or 10 years ago. And I don't think we need to see the same stories told over and over again. I mean, I'm sure there is there are lots of people out there who are so happy to constantly see a new Spider-Man coming out. And even the Spider-Man folks have done a little bit of freshening up of the franchise. But I think we all can agree we never need to see, at least not in this generation, another Spider-Man origin story, right? I mean, come on. Um, so those are those are two things that I think I've seen quite a lot of. It'll be interesting to see how the industry takes another shift now that both the, the big strikes, the writer strike and the actor strike, have uh, been settled. Um, people are going to be paid better, but that's also going to change probably the the amount of content that's out there, the amount of shows, the amount of films that are coming out. Um, so, yeah, I think we're going to be entering a new phase of how the industry deals with making films, making TV, and also compensating people appropriately for it. You know, one of the things that, that came out of those strikes, one of the big 
holding points was, of course, streaming and, and how residuals are being paid and all of that. But one of the other bigger pieces um, that I think really, I don't think a lot of people have, have entirely understood necessarily the mechanics of it is how generative AI, both mm -hmm. in scripting, effects, actors, likenesses, all of that stuff has really been, that apple cart's been upset for really the last year. I mean, yeah. you know, it was about this time a year ago where everybody discovered what Jap chat GPT was. <laughs> Has it really only been a year? Good gracious. Yeah. Feels like it's been longer than that. <laughs> well, and I mean, I've been working with some of those technologies for a very long time, but right. really for it to become public. Yeah, really are. We just are coming in on a year. And yeah, I mean, looking at the amount of change and how big of a sticking point things like oh yeah, we don't really need you to act anymore. We've already got your likeness and that attempt to go grab people's likenesses. Yeah. Um, you know, that idea of, oh, we don't need extras anymore. We don't need mm -hmm. all of these things anymore. And, and having so many friends that work in the industry, you know, things like practical effects or people just being around. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think a lot of people, we've seen such a huge change just in entertainment where the number of people around and the lack of really practical effects, I think, is, has affected storytelling tremendously. And not always. Uh, yeah. No, uh, you're right. Um, actually, what you were just mentioning a minute ago is like, we don't need you anymore. We have your image. Years ago, there used to be a TV show, I think, that was on in the 70s or early 80s. It was an anthology horror show called Dark Room. Hmm. And um, one of the episodes was there's this newscaster and he's sort of, he's getting on, but he's still beloved. And um, he saw, he, they, they, they're going to replace him, but he, they, they offer him a new deal. They say, look, let us just film you. We're going to, we're going to do this whole 360 ca motion capture thing of you. And then we're going to just use that to, to read the news every night. And you can go and get re be retired and enjoy your life and everything. And we'll pay you all sorts of money for this. And of course the twist is it's like, well, yeah, he so he does all of this, and the twist is, of course, uh, well, you can't be see, you can't be doing the news every night if you're showing that you're out in uh, you know in Hawaii that same afternoon. So uh, we're just going to have to lock you up, basically, and you've agreed to this, and that's the twist. But that it's just interesting to me that that's where we came to, and that that's considered to be a viable option. Yeah, there was a movie in the late seventies, and I am trying to remember what the name of it was. It had Susan Day in it and a couple other people, but it was about early days of, oh yeah we're just going to scan you and we'll we'll just put you out there you don't have to do anything anymore right, Except, right. we don't need you around anymore either but um and i can't remember what that movie was but i i think it's interesting that we're now getting to the point where that's reality i mean you know 2017 2017 mm -hmm. i think it was you know the ccp did a whole thing where the news the the stories that the the presenters read was generated by ai the um, the voices were AI. The you know the pictures, the representation, the graphics were AI and entirely manufactured people. Mm -hmm. um, and it was literally going and showing. Oh, by the way, yeah, this is state sponsored media, so we know what they're going to say. But we don't need anyone anymore to do the news. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yeah, you know, I'm 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 really kind of I'm very of two minds on all of this. One of which is that. You know, yes, I can go to the store right now and I can buy a bag of pretzels or I can come home and I can make my own homemade pretzels. 
And I still think that it's going to be a very long time, if ever, that people can't tell the difference. Um, you know, the question is, does that matter? I think so, because I think when people are consuming art, however the art is consumed, it's the it's the rougher edges. It's the things that are the imperfections um, that is what that, that's what people really respond to. I mean, we've had we've had CGI uh, in the movies for many, many years, and they still struggle with the uncanny valley of creating an actual human face. So I'm not saying that ChatGPT is exactly the same as that, but ChatGPT primarily writes what, what now, and, and AI, I almost hate to call it AI because it's neither, it's not really artificial intelligence per se, but that's what everybody calls it. Um, it, it, it. It creates a facsimile. It doesn't create something that really, I think, passes the sniff test. It only regurgitates. It just regurgitates more creatively than we've done before. Yeah, I mean, it, when I've been doing um, workshops and interviews and stuff about it, I'm basically like, it's nothing but predictive text. Mm -hmm. And the best thing it's going to return is, at best, a declining average. Right. One of the things that I worry about myself, just from, from this perspective, is, you know, I was on a panel at DragonCon, and we were talking about it, and I had, at the other end of the row, was somebody going, saying, well, you know, if as long as it's entertaining me, I don't care who wrote it. I'm like, the problem here is because he was talking about some of the games and stuff he was playing. He was like, oh, yeah, this was generated by AI. It's perfectly fine. And being somebody that works in some of that industry, and we're building some things using a blend of scripted and generative AI. I'm like, I know technically where we're at. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to him. I was like, realistically, it's still not going to bring you anything new or innovative. I don't care how well you design the prompts. I don't care what you do it's still going to be that middle of the road. And what I'm worried about is that because it's cheaper, we're going to continue to dumb people down like with reality TV. Mm -hmm. We're going to dumb down the average viewer and the average reader and that almost entertainment new, you know, new being a relative term, but really somewhat original entertainment is going to be almost like artisan material versus the mass produced cheaper stuff to crank out the door. Well, we just talked a minute ago where I, I was bringing it up about the film industry and what's changed and how it became the snake eating its own tail. Well, this is yet another version of that. I mean, whatever AI is creating is not is, is not 100% fresh, original or anything. It is a version of other things that have been done. And let's project into the long term. Let's project and say that this becomes somehow the dominant medium of entertainment and it goes on for 5, 10, 15 years. You get a whole generation of people who don't really know much beyond that. Well, then what happens? Because once again, you've just had it regurgitating its own regurgitating stuff. And it's just going to create more copies of the stuff it's already been creating copies of. I mean, everybody, it feels like you can have that genetic fade, but it'll be, but it would be more entertainment fade. And this, this doesn't go to a good place. What it does is it responds to commerce. It's a commerce decision, 100%. This is not art. And I'm not saying that reality TV or even the greatest TV shows or even all, you know, even the greatest films, not everything has to be art, fancy art. You know, it needs to hang on a wall. Uh, but art is not commerce. Commerce makes art possible because art requires funding in a lot of cases. But once you have the commerce 
telling the art that you're not as important and we're just over here to make money, that's when things really start to slip and fall and fail. And once you can understand that art comes from a raw and real and human place, then you understand the real problem with trying to take something that is predictive text, essentially, like you said, that is about telling us stuff we've already heard. That's that's not art. That that's commerce. That's that's me finding ways to make more money so that my executives can have um, bigger bonuses at the end of the year. It's it's not something that is lasting, and it's not something that is really going to um, make humanity better. I think the best art you find inspiration in, and you it improves us as a species. It connects us and improves us. Um, and once you turn it into just how much how much of a paycheck is this going to generate, you you've completely lost the point of art in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I and I would agree. I mean, it's the act of creativity is in in human creativity is really a large to me a large point of the purpose of being here. It's that ability to create, express. And bring something into the world, whether it entertains, it informs, it educates, whatever else. That is one of those things that I think as we as these things adapt and we just learn to recognize them as another tool. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we can get to the point where not everything needs that particular form of hammer. Yeah. I might be yeah. a little bit enthusiastic on that, but <laughs> hey, we'll give it a try. <laughs> So looking at things from that that journalistic background and you know talking about even going back to childhood and that love of writing stories and writing fiction, mm-hmm. what's it like to balance writing nonfiction and stuff in the entertainment space with creating fiction, your own world, your own stories? Um, well, mostly it's about finding the time to do both. You know, one of them is paying me and one of them doesn't pay me very well. Um, the one that pays me is the one that pays the bills. And it's about me carving out time to be able to do the fiction while I'm doing the other stuff. Now I can enjoy doing nonfiction. I can enjoy doing the entertainment journalism. Um, but my heart remains with writing fiction and the closer I can get to being able to do that on a more full-time basis, the more fulfilled I am, the more, um, the more close, the closer I am to the thing I always wanted to do ever since I was writing about my stuffed animals. Um, so yeah, that's it, it's it's just about using one to find the time to do the other. And when I get paid better for an article, it means that I then don't have to take on a ton more assignments, and I can use that time to then write more fiction. I've I've always I my whole my whole adult life has been a combination of doing the work during the day that is actually going to pay the bills, and then spending parts of my evenings or my weekends or my vacations doing the fiction because you have to fit it into the places where you can fit it in. Um, I, I wouldn't want to go back to this, but one of my, in retrospect, best times was I was t- I temped for a long time. So I got out of college. I had a journalism job. It didn't, it didn't last. But then I temped for a bunch of years. And the temping work was, they didn't expect you to really have half a brain or anything. They'd be like, oh, yeah, answer a phone when it rings, or, or here's five things you need to file. And, you know, I, I can take care of that stuff pretty fast. But um, what I would do is I would I would write my stories. I would finish what they need me to do. I always answer the phone, but I was writing fiction in the middle of uh, all of this work. And I would take the jobs that nobody else wanted, like, oh, it's 
it's Christmas week. Yes, I'll work that. And I worked, I was there in an office one time and there was literally nobody else on the floor except me. But this one boss wanted to make sure if somebody called, the phone would be picked up. And I wrote for hours and hours and I emailed myself whatever I wrote when I was done. And, you know, I learned about clearing the cash on the web and everything. So nobody knew. And I wasn't hurting anybody. I mean, I did the job I was there to do. It wasn't that I was slacking off. But in retrospect, it's like, oh, hours to do that thing. And and still I'm getting paid for it. It was great. It was really cool. So tune in tomorrow. Yeah. Um, now. I don't watch soaps. In fact, in truth, I don't see a whole lot of TV anymore. But I remember as a kid, my grandparents watched a lot of soaps. Mm-hmm. And the reason they watched the soaps was because they wanted to have something to talk to my great aunt about. Because mm-hmm. that's all she had to do was sit and watch soaps. And so looking at all of that was never my thing. But at least I always kind of had that understanding of questionable storytelling and, and that idea of the <laughs> same story arc is going to be going, oh, you mean I was over at the house last summer and the exact same story arc is going on a year later. I can understand. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, not that I'm not that I'm having fun at the expense of soaps at this point. Yeah. But give me time. You would you wouldn't you would, look, you wouldn't be the first if you were. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and but I mean, it was one of those things talking about it because and I mean again I write urban fantasy and all this sort of stuff. I was like, all right, this at least just sounds entertaining. I had to pick it up. And so I did, and you were also kind enough to send me on the special epilogue, which oh, of yes. course was fun as well. <laughs> but I've got to take the fact that a lot of what makes it into this story, kind of like you hinted to, is out of your experience in the entertainment industry. Yeah, yeah, so it is. Why don't you tell a little bit about, set up the story a little bit, and maybe talk a little bit about what inspired it and, and what brought you to this one. Right. So published a novel. Yeah, exactly. So uh, just to clarify, you are both correct and incorrect when you say soap operas. The book did start out where the show within the book, Tune in Tomorrow, was a soap opera. The whole classic phrase, Tune in Tomorrow, comes from the soap world. You know, will Bobby and Julie make it out of the cave alive? Tune in tomorrow. Um, but when I when the book went to acquisition and uh, Solaris, my publisher, they said, you know, people don't watch soap operas anymore. Why don't you? Can you make it reality show? And I was like, no problem. Reality shows are essentially soap operas anyway. This is fine. And I'd actually they were they, they let me include a paragraph in there about how you know reality shows are scripted and it's kind of soap opera. So I feel like I got to have my cake and eat it too in this case. Um, but in the, the so the book is really about. We have a uh, a struggling actor. She's in like her late twenties. Um, she's she's been working at this for ages, but she can't seem to get a, a, an entree into a TV show or anything. Um, she's done some improv and she's done some commercials, but that's it. And the creators or the the executive producer and writer behind Tune In Tomorrow, which is a which again is this, this reality show that exists on the other side of the veil. They only hire humans and they it's been 30 years since they hired the last human and they need a human on the show. And they uh, one of them has been scoping her out for ages and he saw her doing improv as a singing mango and thinks she's thinks she's, you know, exactly what they need for their show. And um, they they come to her at her job and they say, come over and meet us and come over for an audition. And she's like she thinks that it's just people in costumes 
for really good uh, animatronic robots, when she sees dragons and she sees plants that talk to her. Um, but she catches on. And when she catches on, then what happens is she completely accepts the world. She learns exactly why she wants to be in this world like forever. And then she has to deal with the humans who are there, who are not necessarily the most forthcoming or trustworthy that she has ever run into. Um, and the re although she has some romance with a couple of the other actors, the real romance is that she's in love with the show and she will do anything to protect the show and save the show. And the show is having problems and there's reasons for that. Um, so what was interesting to me about telling this, this story was when I watched soap operas, um, when I was little, uh, I was, I, and by little, I was like middle school, high school at this point, I would watch General Hospital which at the time was doing a whole big complicated spy thing and they had these British actors and I'm a big Anglophile. So I'm like, oh, there's British voices and Australian voices and spies and I like this. And I just got really hooked into that show. But even at the time, you could kind of see the beats as they were going by. You're like, okay, if I never watch the episodes on Tuesday and Thursday, I will not miss anything. They're basically like recap episodes. Monday, Monday, they wrap up the stuff that they cliffhangered on Friday, and Wednesday, you'll get some plot development. And once you figured out those beats, you're like, okay, this is in many ways formulaic, but I also can't stop because the, the nature of the storytelling is not only that it goes on and on and on, it's just that it's never as though you hit one day and all the storylines are wrapped up and boom, 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 and we're going to start with fresh storylines tomorrow. They are constantly threading in new storylines and new angles, and um, they eventually do become angles and storylines that you probably have seen a million times before because they go back to the same well. But in the, in the time period when I was really obsessed with General Hospital, I just really loved that show. And um, there was a guy in my neighborhood who was a big D&D &D player. And I never quite got into D&D &D myself, but he also clearly understood the concept of LARPing. And once he knew that I watched General Hospital, I think he brushed up enough of it, enough enough on it, and he would call me out of the blue and be just like, "All right, this is the WSB, which is the spy organization on the uh, on General Hospital. You need to go to this bridge and meet me there. We have special documents for you." And it's not like we discussed this or anything. It just kind of came out of the blue. Like, should I go? What is this? And. And so I, th that whole concept of what is real and what isn't and using story to to influence your life, I think is really was really very interesting. And in recent years, there's been this whole notion that truth and facts are somehow malleable. And Stephen Colbert comes out with the idea of truthiness. Now something feels truth like like truth, so therefore it's truthy. And I I, I remember when I first started watching soap operas. I was young enough to think, oh, this is how adults actually behave. Like, I should watch this almost like a documentary, because then I'll understand adult behavior. Um, and I put that idea into the book because the, the fae creatures who are watching Tune In Tomorrow, who are told it's a reality show, even though it's scripted, they, uh, they believe that that's actually how humans really behave. You know, they live on the veil. They don't go visit uh, our side of the things very often. And they're like, oh, we didn't realize that's what this is like. Okay, this is fascinating. This is real. So much like with soap operas, when the lead actress goes into the fae world, they call her by her character name. They think they, they, they speak to her as though she's still in character because, of course, her character is her real person. 
in their mind. Um, but at one point in the book, she meets a, a centaur and they're talking and he's clearly a big fan of the show and loves her stuff and just thinks she's amazing. And she feels bad because she's like, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think I should let him go on with this. He should understand that I'm me and, and my character is my character. And she says to him something to the effect of, you know, you understand that this isn't real, right? Like that I'm, I'm a different person. And he says to her, it's real enough. And I kind of like that because it doesn't mean that you're denying obvious things like, yes, the world is not flat. You know, like we're not going to have that kind of truthy discussion. But if you are passionate about something and you love something and you embody it, and you want to basically LARP it with your life and it doesn't hurt anybody, it's truth. It's, it's truthy enough. Um, so that was something that I really loved being able to fit in there. Well, and I mean, to me, again, I treat reality TV as soap operas anyway, much like you hint. Mm -hmm. um, and because, again, I can't do it, but I've had enough friends that worked on them. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, again, to me, in my head, they are soap operas. But mm -hmm. looking at just the story, I thought it was a fun picture of how we look and view TV. And I mean, entertainment's one of those things where we've gotten to definitively blending what's what's real mm -hmm. and what's fiction. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'll take a quick side trip. Um, Shauna McGuire, we were doing a thing the other night with Shauna McGuire. Mm -hmm. And one thing she brought up, we were, we were doing a show on time travel. And she comes out and she says, well, when I was a kid, I believed that Doctor Who was a documentary. <laughs> because it was on PBS. And she said, my parents said I could watch whatever was on PBS. If it was before noon, it wasn't real, but it could it would be educational, but it wasn't real people and real things. If it was uh, afternoon with documentaries and stuff like that, that was all real. Hmm. And Doctor Who came on at seven o'clock at night. So Doctor Who was real. <laughs> and, and we're all cracking up as she's telling the story. But it uh, this is one of those things where I think that the overwhelming amount of reality TV, game show stuff, and how we we really have adapted so much fiction. I think when we look at how much stuff is out there on streaming, right? Mm -hmm. When we look at so many things that are now available that in the good old days of we have three, then four, then five, then six, then five, then four networks. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> there were still only so many hours of TV that were going to hit a week. Now mm -hmm. with streaming, as you said, there's a near infinite amount out there, which means we can tell the largest and smallest of stories and find an, find an audience with that. Yeah. And I think that's part of when I read the story was in that, I remember that moment very well, because there, I remember right at Central Park and uh -huh. it's real enough. And I think that that's a large part of what fans get out of storytelling and out of stories that hit and have meaning. Yeah. You know, like when you're working on the sequel, I would really like to see you bring back the, I'd like you to see you make it a version of Firefly. Not that I'm asking for anything. <laughs> that's um, right. Let's, let's put everybody in space. <laughs> put them back in space. Um, but I mean, you're coming at this as, as a creator of fiction. You're coming at this as a journalist watching, watching entertainment and how it fits into culture. Mm -hmm. you're come, and the two, I think, in this story, I think part of the reason I had so much fun with it was 
to an extent, I remember the days of going in covering concerts and covering film and covering some of this sort of stuff. What importance do you think that entertainment really has for culture now mm-hmm. versus not even a few years ago when it was much more limited? Um, I don't know that I can necessarily say it has made some sort of evolutionary leap and uh, uh, affects us differently than it did just a few years ago. Uh, and maybe I'm not understanding you correctly, but, um, you know, I would just go back to, you know, entertainment gives us the permission to let our imagination go free. I mean, you can sit and simply passively watch something, but once you engage with that, once it invades your dreams, once you write fan fiction about it, once you LARP it, um, you make it part of your life. I mean, it becomes a chapter in your life too. You graft yourself onto it. Um, and you can take that in any direction you want. Some, some of that some of that fiction that I was telling you about that I was writing while I was doing the temp work was I was doing uh, fan fiction for Law and Order because I just... I was a big Law and Order fan at the time, and they had basically no backstories. So it's kind of like, hey, I have all this room to play around, and let's just write some of this. And there were fans online who really, really wanted to read it. And I would write these really long novels and use basically all my own characters except for a few of these shows. So I was really kind of writing fiction. But basically, I had been inspired by this particular show enough to fuel my own creativity. I wasn't simply sitting back and taking it in as a passive thing to watch before you go to bed or something. And I think that's true with art these days. I think that there's so many more places for, if there is, if there has been a shift, it's that we have a much more open and egalitarian platform for everybody to be a creator. And that can be good or bad. You know, I, I, I watch a certain amount of TikTok and some of the stuff that goes by is wildly creative and some of it is wildly interesting and some of it is wildly a waste of your time. But these are all people who have decided they have something to say or want to show something or want to explain something and they have a place to do it now. And entertainment, I think, is critical in, in telling you that you have permission to do that, to think about other worlds, to think about other ways of thinking. And then maybe you turn it around and you do it yourself. So looking at that idea of the permission that it gets as creators, sometimes that's a challenge, right? Is to give Mm -hmm. ourselves the permission to create what's really there in our heads and Mm -hmm. what sometimes holds us back. Has that hit you at all as you were working on some of these stories where you were going, hmm? (laughs) You know, and whatever you have in your head is never going to be as perfect. It's it's always going to be more perfect than you put it on the page. I think that that's I think that's inevitable. Um, you trying to tell the story to yourself is so much easier than trying to tell it to the world. Um, there was a guy I interviewed in a band once, and his debut album had come out. The band's debut album had come out, and he was pissed because he was one of these perfectionists in the studios, and it took ages and ages and wasted a lot of money. And finally, the, the record company said, "Look." Um, we we could put this out. We put enough money into this. We're going to use these tracks, and that's it. And you're done. And it, that pissed him off. So he had. So after we did our interview, uh, and I loved that album. It was a great album. And after we did the interview, he said, "Look, I want to play you the real tracks." And so we went into the uh, the the, uh, the tour bus, and he had this 
crappy little uh, cassette tape and he popped it in and we sat and listened to what he felt were the best versions of these songs. Um, and he said, he said to me at the time, you know, it, it's, it's almost impossible to translate. Like he hears it in his head, but trying to translate it into the finished product is almost impossible. Um, so gosh, I, I feel like I've lost my own thread at this point. Remind me what our question was. Well, I mean, I, no, I think this hit, hits it. It's that when we're blending the reality of, I got to do these things to pay the bills, but creativity, mm -hmm. it, 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 the seeds of creativity to me, again, are one of the most important things about humanity. Yeah. And it is, it's one of those things I don't think most people, I mean, I don't think most people will ever get that idea of what's going to take to get close enough out of my head to the page or on mm -hmm. print or the film to music because there's always something we see or hear or feel in that. And, you know, to me, the act of being creative is always a co-creation experience because mm -hmm. what I may have intended or what I may have tried to, to target or no matter how well I do it, mm -hmm. the way you're going to get that, the way you're going to interpret that is the reader, the consumer, the hearer, the listener, the viewer yeah. is always going to come through your filters and your experience mm -hmm. and what you like and what you don't. Yeah. And that co-creation experience to me is part of the reason we do this, right? Because ultimately that's part of the mix. That's part of what we do. Yeah. And I think it's also important to understand that, you know, what is in your head, that is one form of entertainment. Taking that and putting that onto a paper, you are now making a new form of entertainment. You know, the people who say the book is always better than the movie, that may be true. You do not want to see the direct transliteration of that book into that movie. It's two different art forms. It's like saying, well, you know, the apple was better than the orange. Well, no, because it's two different things. You can make an apple look like an orange, but it's not, it's still not an orange. Um, so it, 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 the idea is to be able to compromise with your own imagination to create something that goes to a different medium, whether it's film, whether it's TV, whether it's a book, and that other people will then be able to sort of upload to their own imaginations and then they take it and run with it and go wherever they're going to go with it. So, you know, kind of with all of that in mm -hmm. mind, I mean, what, what do you want in, to come out of anybody diving into your work? Fiction, nonfiction? Right. What do you want people to take away from it? Well, fiction and nonfiction alike, I certainly hope they're going to see something or experience something or read something or learn something that they didn't already know or see or had already seen before. I mean, with luck, you're bringing them something fresh that, that is maybe familiar, but is not exactly the same damn thing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that with the book specifically, that it, it, it makes people laugh, but also makes them think a little bit about what truth and reality and uh, even mean and also what it means to really just to be passionate about wanting to create something um you know that the, the bat there's a backstory in tune in tomorrow about a about a creator who um you know doesn't sort of i don't want to give anything away but um there's a former writer on the show who sort of goes the the chat gpt route shall we say and who is 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 uh is 
is caught <laughs> while doing it. And there and that, that sort of ends up spinning a lot of what comes out in the future, um, in the future rest of the story. Uh, that that that's how that plays out. Um, but yeah, I, I I sort of hope that people will will get a laugh out of it, that something will stick with them, that maybe one of these characters will be somebody that they they like well enough to want to see more of. There's a dragon in the book named Phil, who is the receptionist slash security guard. And uh, he seems to be the breakout character that everybody likes, which is fantastic. I'm happy about that. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous of his cave. Um, it, it looks a little, I, I think it looks a little nicer than mine does at the moment. But, <laughs> um, it, you know, so for anybody that's looking at maybe wanting to go down this creative path and they're trying to figure out balancing that professional life and their creative life and, mm-hmm. and how the two inter- intermix, you know, having the benefit of being able to write and create both fiction and nonfic and, you know, writing fiction always informs my style for nonfic and this and vice versa. Right. Mm-hmm. But what has all of the fiction creativity and all of that work done to kind of help you career wise? you know, life-wise, what's it done for you? Um, I actually would say the nonfiction has probably helped the fiction more than anything else because the nonfiction has helped me learn to be concise, has helped me learn to be edited, um, to embrace the rewrite. One of the reasons it's taken me so long to get a book out is that I, 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 I don't like to think I was precious about my writing so much, but it was more like, I didn't. I couldn't conceive the idea that you have to do multiple rewrites on something. I'd be like, "Here's my draft," and uh, yeah, there's probably some mis- the spelling mistakes, but it's clearly perfect the way it is. And I couldn't take criticism. And once I'd had enough years of editing and writing and feeling confident with my writing, but then also being able to accept criticism and feedback and and think about different ways to tell the story. That's when things really changed for me was the ability to um, understand that even though you may think that you have told the story as you wanted it to be told, um, it's not necessarily working for the people who are reading it. And after you, they are the most important people. If you can't communicate what you want to the people who are going to pick up the book, then you're you're not succeeding with the story you're trying to tell. So what haven't we talked about tonight? Oh, you know... Many we haven't talked about foxes or mangoes, but that's okay. <laughs> foxes and mangoes, well, yes, especially the foxes. Yes, very big fox fan over here. Although there are no foxes in this book, um, but yes, I, my my mug has a has a, even has a box on it. So yeah, the next in the next book, you'll have to have a kitsune. <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. Well, and so in the epilogue that I sent you. I believe that the interviewer who's trying to interview Star is a Kitsune. Um, but that, but initially that was going to be a framing device, that particular epilogue. We were going to start with the idea that all of this is Star's recollection and this is her memoirs. And then I was informed that that doesn't really start the story fast enough. And they, that was a good point. So we ended up with it as an epilogue. So there is actually in the epilogue. So if you buy this book, people out there, and you like it, I'm very easy to find. You go to my webpage, randydawn.com, and you send me a note. And when you finish the book, I will send you this epilogue that did not fit into the book. And then you will see more, a little bit more of these characters. Well, it's definitely a fun read. So other than you. you at Randy Dawn, where else can folks find you? 
Um, let's see. Well, Randy Dawn is kind of the good coalesced area for all of the articles and things that I have. Um, but I'm also on um, I'm also on Twitter, although it's hard to say how much longer I'll be there because it's problematic. But um, it's, it's I'm at Randy Dawn on Twitter. I'm at author Randy Dawn on Facebook. Uh, I am on Blue Sky again. It's, I think I'm just Randy on Blue Sky and Instagram. I mean, basically, if it says Randy Dawn, there's a good chance that's me, and it's Randy with two E's. Almost certainly, that's going to be me. So I'm like I say, I'm pretty easy to find all over, and I do even have a TikTok page, so you could find me on TikTok as well. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming to hang out with me for a bit and talk about a book that I thoroughly enjoyed, as well as kind of diving into, you know, some of the other the other behind the scenes, just a little bit of a view. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Your questions were great. So, and until next week, this has been Creating Pros.